time with the Lord so far, eh? It's, uh, it's, I, I love our church family, you know, and weekends like this uh, just remind me how, uh, how wonderful uh, our church family is and how uh, wonderful it is to see the Lord moving in our midst as we all do our part. One other thing that happened yesterday is that uh, Nathan did his first wedding. So after the, after the big give, uh, Nathan, then, Nathan and Kate then drove an hour into Lanark and he married Paul and Amanda. Paul from Malaysia who works at the back like a legend so often and uh, also Amanda. And so it was, it was wonderful to, you know, to be there in that wedding and Nathan did a great job. And uh, so I'm, I'm uh, really excited that uh, Paul and Amanda got married and maybe later they'll watch this. But uh, if, you, uh, you know, if you see them over the next couple of weeks, uh, or if you see Paul's parents, I'm not sure when they're heading back to Malaysia, but uh, please feel free to pass on your congratulations, or to Nathan for doing his uh, first wedding. So it was, uh, you know, for Wendy and I, it was a day of two halves. It was the morning, sweating and moving and photoing and chatting and talking and seeing all this stuff happening, and then half an hour shower and then in the car in our wedding best, ready for uh, a wonderful wedding. So it was uh, a very special day. Lord, I pray that you would come in your strength and your power, and that you would come in your own special way, in your own, in your own gentle way, Lord, that uh, you would speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Scenario number one. They'd planned to attract more visitors, but the increased visitor traffic ended up making them less attractive to visitors. Scenario number two, the winning football team were overconfident, and so they started a strategy of time-wasting towards the end of the match, only for the other team to score some incredible last-minute points and win the match. Scenario number three, he'd only planned to make her jealous. But when she found out what he'd done, she left him for someone else, and he ended up alone. Scenario number four, she wanted to be strong and healthy, so she pushed herself hard to be the best in her team, only to injure her back in the gym and lose all hope of future glory. Scenario number five, they wanted to raise their children in the church with a clear sense of moral right and wrong only for one of their teens to rebel against this legalism and leave the church entirely. What have I just described? I've just described five scenarios where a plan has actually backfired. And many of us this morning have our own stories of a plan backfiring. So the question is, what do we do when our plans backfire. What do you do when your plans backfire? How do you keep going when you come face to face with the law of unintended consequences? Many times, uh, the consequence of a plan backfiring can be less serious, can be minimal, can be even humorous, like this uh, video I watched on YouTube of this young man filming himself with two huge gallon jugs of milk and he smashed them on the ground in the grocery store because apparently it was a thing, that's what you did to get uh, hits or likes. 
and uh, he ended up slipping on the milk puddle he'd created and breaking his jaw, okay? Other times, a backfiring plan can have much more serious consequences, such as when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, hoping to eliminate the U.S. military presence in the Pacific, but this plan backfired and actually caused the U.S. to get engaged in World War II and ultimately led to the first atomic bombs being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This uh, teaching this morning is the last in the series on surprise, uh, the unexpected acts of God in the book of Acts. And so far we've witnessed um, Simon Peter's um, surpri uh, surprising conflict of allegiances in Acts chapter 5. And we talked about when should we obey the authorities and when should we resist. We then looked at Saul's surprising change of circumstances and uh, where Saul met the risen Jesus on the road, uh, road heading into Damascus. And we each asked, asked ourselves the question, where is my Damascus, where a change has happened on the inside, nothing changes on the outside, I'm still going back to, to where I was going, but, but uh, how can I do that in the way that I'm changed and transformed by the, by the presence of the risen Christ? Uh, the week after that, we looked at the surprising heirloom of yeah, Tabitha, and uh, we asked ourselves, what are we going to be remembered for? What is the spiritual heirloom that we're passing on to others? Week four was the surprising dimensions of a doorway uh, where the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles for the first time in Cornelius' house in Caesarea Philippi. And we asked the question, how wide is the doorway to the kingdom of God? And we figured out that it's wider than probably any of us could imagine, but it's not one inch wider than the truth that Jesus is the only way. And then we looked last week at a surprising game of hot and cold, and we, and we looked at the ways that the Holy Spirit leads us, which is less like a game of Simon Says, um, and is more like a game of hot and cold. And we saw how God led Paul and his friends from Phrygia um, over to Macedonia, specifically onto the riverbanks outside uh, yeah, the city there, and, uh, we, and we practiced um, a, uh, a tool using the acronym STAR, which is about stopping, taking a breather, appreciating Jesus, and then responding to him whenever we're faced with a situation outside of our control or that we cannot see a way out of. And so, you know, the goal with this is to, uh, is to calm down our anxious thoughts without solving the situation so that we can hear the Holy Spirit speak to us. So anyways, over the past few weeks, during this post-Easter season, uh, hopefully we've recognized that the Holy Spirit is way more inventive and creative and resourceful than we could ever imagine. And the fact that he loves to partner with us in this crazy adventure of kingdom expansion is nothing short of incredible like we saw yesterday. So last week, if you remember, we left Paul on the banks of the river outside the gates of the city with Lydia, who, who came to faith in Christ by responding to Paul's message. And this morning, as the story continues in Acts chapter 16, we're going to be focusing on the way that, uh, that or on the surprising way that the Holy Spirit can reclaim our failed plans for his glory and for our good and for the spread of the gospel. So, that's why we're calling it the surprising God of backfiring plans. So let's start at uh, Acts chapter 6, 
verse 16, which says this, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. So right away we see that Paul's plan for the morning has backfired. He's, he's on his way to this place of prayer, presumably to pray or maybe to meet with the newly converted Lydia, where instead he meets a slave possessed by an unclean spirit. Now, this slave would have most likely been part of the cult of the Python of Delphi, um, where, where oracles would receive insights or predictions from the gods, uh, and then they would pass them on. So all this to say that when Paul woke up that morning going to prayer, um, probably meeting a demon-possessed girl was not high on his agenda. In the same way that if you were driving to church this morning and you met a demon-possessed girl, probably uh, it would knock you off your, your uh, routine just a little bit. So Paul's plans have backfired. It's safe to say that. Who else's plans backfire? Well, let's find out in verse 16. It said, She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. So not only did Paul's plans backfire, but the evil spirit's plans also backfired, and my advancing has backfired, so there we go. You know, the evil spirit's plan, I'm sure, wasn't to get cast out, and, but it was, the, the spirit's plans backfired, and I'm sure that if you love Jesus, then you're okay with the evil spirit's plans backfiring. Now, I'm not trying to... Well, I don't generally try to mind-read evil spirits, but I assume that by saying what the evil said, um, the demon was trying to sabotage the spread of the gospel, which is interesting because every word that the evil spirit said was actually true, right? These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you to, the way to be saved. So everything that the spirit said was true, but... Even a good thing said in the wrong way can be received as a bad thing. I'm sure that we've all experienced that. Like my dog, Ollie, for example. I can say to him, um, you know, in a nice, kind tone, Ollie, you're a really, really bad boy. And his tail would be wagging. However, if I said to Ollie, Ollie, sorry. Bring it down. Imagine I'm shouting. I don't want to trigger anyone. Ollie, you're a good boy. You're a good boy, I tell you. Come over here so I can rub your back. He'd slink off into the corner, quite afraid. So who knows, but maybe uh, the demon was speaking. I don't know. We don't hear the, you know, the voice or the tone of voice, but maybe... Uh, the demon was speaking in a really sarcastic way, right? These men are servants of the most high gods who are telling you the way to be saved, right? I don't know. But anyway, th uh, the demon's goal was to screw up Paul's plans. Now, 
In the Gospels, we read about Jesus being moved by compassion to heal. We don't hear too many incidences when people are frustrated into healing someone, but that's what we hear here, right? Is Paul going, can I just have some silence, please? Out. What a guy. And so, of course, now the spirit has to leave and uh, either find another host or to go into the abyss. Verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating Roman uh, uh, customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Now, it's important here that we notice that what the owners don't say is, these men have exorcised our little demon girl and set her free so that she can no longer do the cool eyes rolling back in the head and speaking in a creepy you know, voice thing anymore. That's not fair. We're unhappy. Don't because you don't admit to that kind of thing. You don't admit to that kind of motivation. Instead, what they do is they invoke nationalism, xenophobia, and start talking about these Jews and us Romans, uh, which then gets everyone's knickers in a twist. How dare these men advocate customs unlawful to us Romans to accept or practice? Well, shouldn't we have a proper trial first? No, they are those Jews and we are us Romans. And so automatically they are wrong. And so you can see, well, that was, that was how the demon sounded. Okay, that was the... That was the noise. That was awesome. Can we maybe go back and I can do that part again? <laughs> and so you can see how these slave owners faced with, this, with these backfired plans lash out in spite and they fabricate a story themselves. And most likely we have done the same ourselves. Maybe not on the same level, maybe not inciting a riot, but you know in our own quiet, polite, polite passive-aggressive way we reinvent the past so it's in favor of us. Maybe gaslighting is a term for that. And so we can add these slave owners to our list. Paul's plans of a prayer time have backfired, and the evil spirit's plans uh, to discredit Paul have backfired, and now the owners of this slave girl, their plans have backfired. So the question on everyone's mind is, is anyone having a good day in this story? Well, for sure not Paul, because his plans backfire again. Acts 16.22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, think about it. Paul has just freed a little girl of a demon. He's a hero. He should be, you know, at least given a plaque or a parade of honor and a, a special day, maybe. Um, you know, folks should be coming up to Paul at this moment saying, what must I do to be saved? But instead, he and Silas are beaten and tortured and flogged and thrown into prison. Not only that, but then... Uh, 
uh, the jailer is told to keep an eye on them, and you can read the subtext there. So he moves them to the dungeon part of the prison with rats and slime on the wall and the drip, drip, drip of water, and then their feet are placed in stocks. And why did this all happen? Because Paul healed a girl of a demon on his way to church. Okay, maybe Paul's uh, motivation wasn't the best. He did it because he was annoyed. But regardless, he did a good thing. And because of that good thing, he and Silas are now in the slammer. That phrase, right, no good deed goes unpunished. And so Paul's plans have backfired again. Let's uh, carry on and see how the story unfolds. Acts 16 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken at once. All the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. And the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Okay, at this point, let's hit pause. Because I just want us to recap all of the plans that have backfired so far. Paul's plans have backfired. The demons' plans have backfired. The slave owners' plans have backfired. Paul's plans have backfired again. And now this jailer is about to commit suicide. Not just ideations, but he has a plan in place. And he has the means. He's milliseconds away from ending it all. And so the question that needs to be answered at this critical juncture, at least in my mind, is this. Have God's plans backfired? You know, everyone else's plans seem to have backfired. And some of the plans, I'm glad that they have backfired, like the demons and the owners. But Paul's, how is Paul's plans backfiring twice? How can that be considered any type of a good thing? So in this moment... Where do we see God? How do we see God? Is God there wringing his hands and wondering how on earth he's going to make any sort of a plan from this mess of backfired unintended circumstances? I mean, you know, Paul was just going to church. He was just going to prayer. And now all of a sudden there's a demon preaching the gospel. And there's an exorcism being done in frustration. And there's a race riot. And maybe there's lawsuits. And now Paul's in the dungeon. And now the jailer is about to end it all. Is it possible for life to get so complicated with so many agents and actors and motivations and free will and drives and intentions and ambitions and failed plans? Is it possible for life to get so complicated that God just throws up his hands and says, I just can't have God's plans backfired? Well, we find our answer in verse 27. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So the answer here is that God's plans do not backfire. Okay, just think about the complexity of these unintended consequences that involved, 
you know, the backfiring plans of an evil spirit and an angry apostle and corrupt slave owners, not to mention a racist mob and a cowardly justice system. And it all leads to this moment where a hardened jailer pleads, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So whether it's through an international game of hot and cold from Phrygia to Macedonia like we heard about last week, or whether it's through God redeeming the failed plans of a demon and a slave owner and a frustrated preacher, the mystery of how God uses the most unlikely circumstances and people to bring his kingdom to earth is nothing short of astounding. And... The cross is the most audacious and incredible example of God using the backfired plans of evil to crush evil. So the question on the table this morning is this. How should you respond when your plans backfire? How should you respond when, like Paul, it seems like no matter what you do, you just never seem to get your way No matter how much you care and how much love you show, it always gets thrown back in your face. No matter how well you try to live your life, you just don't seem to be able to catch a break. It feels like you're constantly being punished for doing the right thing. How do you respond when your best intended plans backfire and you literally have no way forward? When it feels like you're in a deep, dank prison of your heart and mind? with your feet in stocks. Well, how did Paul and Silas respond? I think if we're going to learn how we should respond in these moments, let's see how Paul and Silas responded. Acts 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, I don't want to be simplistic, but it seems to me that verse 25 of Acts 16 is in the Bible for a reason. And I don't think it's there as a kind of, here's how to get out of jail tip, right? If you find yourself in a bad spot and you don't know what to do, just sing some songs of praise and pray to Jesus and he will show up and set you free right? That's not what we're seeing here. This isn't an infomercial for how to get out of a tough spot. What we're seeing here is a decision being made in the darkness of backfired plans with zero promise of salvation, with zero assurance of rescue, with, with, with no guarantee of light at the end of the tunnel. These men have backs which are bloody from the flogging. Their ankles are rubbed raw. They are bleeding. They are hated by the people in the city that God called them to in a vision. Uh, You know, they're being treated as the worst of the worst. And instead of succumbing to self-pity or ranting against the unfairness of life, what they do is they pray and they sing. Now, when we say sing, you know, this isn't a, ooh, what's the Christian thing to do when I'm feeling a little bit sad? I know, I'll sing Jesus loves me, this I know, and everything will be okay. Okay, that's not what we're seeing here. What we're seeing here instead is something very, very different. It's something that's more like, how the heck are we going to survive 
this ordeal? How are we going to get through this? I have no idea, but let's pray and let's sing. And that's what they do, because they have nothing left. They have nothing else. Singing hymns isn't just a nice thing that we do on a Sunday morning. Singing hymns is a lifeline. And praying isn't an item that we check off the list at the end of the day. God bless mummy and daddy, right? Praying is chest compressions to a soul that is about to expire. And it's through singing hymns and praying that we fend off the encroaching darkness. And so Paul and Silas pray. And, and they sing. And as they pray and sing, people listen. And when you choose to sing or to pray in the desperation of the darkness of your own circumstances, people listen. And maybe one of the people who was listening to these hymns of rebellious joy and desperate resistance was the jailer. And so when the earthquake came and he entered into his darkest moment of his life and Paul called out that they were all present, that no one has escaped, he was able to take them seriously because you tend to listen to someone who sings hymns when their plans backfire. And as a result, in verse 31, the jailer enters the kingdom of Jesus. He takes Paul and Silas home and he washes their wounds. And then Paul then returns the favor and he washes the jailer and his family in baptism. The church in Philippi is growing. It was just Lydia and her household that now there's a good chance that it's also this, this formerly possessed um, slave girl that she's also probably of this um, nascent church and now a jailer and his household. What a motley crew, right? This is not church planting 101, but this is the family of God. James chapter 5 verse 13 says this, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. And this means that in every circumstance, no matter how stuck we feel, we always have room to maneuver even just a little bit. Because we can always pray. And we can always sing songs of praise. And what this means is that we have to vocalize. We have to get these, these thoughts that maybe are wool gathering in our heads. And we need to actually put them out, not into the universe, but into God's presence. When we're on our own in our homes, we express our trouble through our spoken prayers. And we express our happiness through verbalized songs of praise. This means that you can literally walk around your house or out on a walk, and, and you can sing, Jesus, name above all names, beautiful Savior, glorious Lord, Emmanuel, God is with us, blessed Redeemer, living Word. And as you sing that song, things change. You see, I know myself, and I know that when I'm in the jail cell of negativity, maybe depression or stuck in circumstances outside of my control, when my plans backfire, I cannot rely on my feelings in that moment to motivate me to pray or to sing. I want to do the opposite, which is why I have to be prepared 
ahead of time, which is why I have an Evernote folder on my phone with the words to 93 hymns and songs of worship because I know that there's power in singing hymns when my feet are in stocks. And this is why I carry around with me a prayer necklace with me everywhere I go so I can physically put my hands on it and I can pray, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, and I can pray, uh, Lord, Lord, I belong to you. Lord, I belong to you. And it goes through my fingers. You know, and I can pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And And once I've gone through this whole thing praying that, my mind has changed. And this is why I own prayer books, right? Which are small enough to fit in my pocket, right? Because, because, well, I don't know why. Is it because I'm super spiritual, Maybe it is. Is it because I'm a pastor? Is this what pastors walk around carrying? Is it because I'm a professional? Is this why I carry things like this around with me? No, it's because I'm rubbish. And I can never count on myself doing the right thing when things are dark. I need prompts. I need reminders. I need the ringtone on my phone to sound like church bells three times a day so that I remember that Jesus is on the throne. Friends, we need to proclaim the truth of who God is during our dark times when it feels like all of our plans are backfiring and we do it through choosing to pray in prison and we do it by choosing to sing when our feet are in stocks because people are listening, people are watching like the jailer. And here's the neat thing, is that our witness in the dark times may make the difference between them losing hope and ending it all, or them turning to you and saying, what must I do to be saved? How can I have what you have? Teach me to sing songs in the darkness. Friends, your plans may backfire, and other people's plans may backfire, and Satan's plans are constantly backfiring. Praise God, but God's plans never do. And so as you go about your day, you may think that you're just going to a nice place of prayer or to church by a nice riverbank. But perhaps God is leading you to a very different place, a place of hardship, because your prayers and hymn singing sound that much louder there in the darkness. And it's in the darkness where the people who need Jesus are. Let's pray.